This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Let me get uh, Mark Stein in here on other matters south of the border. There's a big confab going on right now as we speak about the impeachment of Donald Trump, where hyperbole seems to be the watchword of the day. Some are calling it uh, democracy's defining moment. Others have likened it to the Salem witch trials, a crucifixion of Christ. Look, uh, we know where this movie is going. We just don't know how the date is going to end up. Let's find out from Mr. Stein, who's an international best-selling author and host of the Mark Stein Show. Mark, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, John. Are you following uh, the shenanigans there in Washington? Uh, I could lie to you and say, yes, I am. I check in once every uh, four or five weeks or so to see how impeachment's going. But otherwise, uh, this is defining impeachment down by any standard. Despite what uh, Nancy Pelosi was saying on the news just now, the founders would not recognize this. If I were an accredited constitutional scholar, I'd say this was an interesting lesson in the differences between the U.S. Constitution and a Westminster constitution like uh, Canada's. Canada's depends on codes and conventions. It sort of presumes uh, that gentlemen will understand the nuances in it. Uh, So it just says uh, um, executive, uh, whatever it is, clause 18, executive power shall be vested in Her Majesty. And everything else, there's no mention of prime ministers or cabinets or anything like that. You're just meant to... Uh, actually uh, understand that there's a little more to it than that sentence. The Americans wrote everything down, and they didn't have codes and conventions. They had checks and balances. And what this impeachment does is it basically makes a mockery of all the checks and balances um, and uh, and and is, is inviting, were it to work, and the president to be removed from office, uh, would mean essentially that uh, any House of Representatives could remove a president for almost any any reason entirely. It's not going to work for the Democrats. It's motivating the Republican base. And actually, for the hardcore leftists in the Democrat base, they're not even that interested in it. They want socialism. They want single-payer health care. Uh, they want open borders. And impeaching of Trump comes very low on, on the uh, young activists' list of priorities. Well, the polls seem to reflect that as well, I guess. Uh, there seems to be less of an appetite today than there was even a week ago or two weeks ago for this. Yeah. Thing. Well, because it's obviously ridiculous. You, let's say this goes to a trial in the Senate early next year, around about the time of the New Hampshire primary. You're going to have four rival presidential candidates voting on whether to remove the existing president from office. Uh, in any rinky-dink little county courthouse around the world, uh, that would be something on which a judge had to recuse himself uh, for. You know, like if, if, say, Fred Smith's will... Uh, there's a dispute between uh, Fred Smith's two sons, and one happens to be the probate court judge. Uh, you know, uh, that's basically what's going on here. Uh, Trump's electoral rivals are voting on whether to remove him from office. It it's, uh, makes a mockery of all the checks and balances, uh, and, it's, and it's going nowhere for these loser Dems. All right. So if it's lapsed into this degree of absurdity, uh, you're submitting then that mostly uh, the public has figured it out and has turned away or been turned off by this. Uh, so what is it, basically just a charade, a Kafkaesque kind of a scenario they're walking through? Uh, yeah, I think I think where, where you you mentioned I think Salem witch trials. Uh, I I said the other night that the situation Trump's in is a bit like the medieval ducking stool for witches. <laughs> the only way Trump can prove he didn't steal the last election 
and and the next election is to lose the election. Uh, In other words, if Trump wins the election, that ipso facto is proof that he stole it because no (laughs) rational person could believe that Trump could ever win an election. So unless he loses, he's stolen it. This is this is nonsense. And uh, and and all it does is actually uh, shore up the Republican base and do nothing for the Democrats. And they're, they're, they're basically running, uh, because all their actual candidates are duds, they're running a guy called I Impeachment <laughs> as, the, as, the, uh, as the sort of effective candidate against Trump this time round. Again with Mark Stein, international best-selling author, host of The Mark Stein Show, on this impeachment thing. Let me just follow up a little more fully. I mean, with this degree of cynicism, where does that leave the republic going forward? I mean, you know, when somebody had called this, uh, you know, democracy's defining moment. I mean, that's pretty lofty rhetoric. Uh, you just see well, this. No, Go ahead. No, I mean, I find that absolutely offensive, John, because actually it's a negation of, uh, of, of democracy. It's, it's the same thing. Some Labour Party guy in the UK, six minutes after polls closed, uh, going on the exit thing, uh, immediately tweeted, uh, if this exit poll is correct, that showed Boris Johnson's Tories winning, then this is a victory for the old over the young, uh, for racists over social justice and for selfishness over the good of the planet. That's why, you know, so in other words, six minutes after polls closed, uh, he's already bored with having lost uh, (laughs) last week's election and he's moved on to losing the next election. That kind of condescension, contempt for the electorate and refusal to recognize the result of the election is actually placing responsible self-government in great jeopardy. Uh, And that's true whether the the condescending twerps are in Washington, London or, uh, or Brussels in the European Union. Well, since you cited Boris Johnson, then uh, let me work it into the equation here, because the landslide victory, uh, maybe not a lot of people saw coming or labor, you know, whistling past the graveyard or whatever. But uh, is there anything instructive about that landslide win by Boris Johnson that uh, could inform Canada's Conservative Party and uh, any leadership aspirant who they should choose, so on and so forth? (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I would like a human being. I mean, I, I think I think when we talked about uh, the the Anglo debate uh, the the day after, whatever it was, and I observed to you that the the uh, the only two human beings on the stage were the two francophone candidates uh, uh, who were speaking in their second language. Uh, I've no idea what the first language of the animatronic figures on the Anglo side of the stage was, but Sheer was the worst example of that. This sort of packaged pap. Uh, Boris Johnson is in many ways, you know, he's he's no more a rock-ribbed conservative than Andrew Scheer is, but he can take he can take the tennis ball and he can return it across the net and thwack it down the other guy's gullet. And uh, and and uh, at the very least, even with, with talk of, you know, oh, uh, you know, Andrew Scheer hasn't sold out enough conservative principles. If only he'd sold out the last three remaining conservative principles, uh, he might have he might have got across the f- finish line. It's nothing to do with that. The fact is, he's he he's uh, he, he couldn't even win 
when the other guy is capering around as some as the as the 21st century's only mammy singer. That's how bad Andrew Shear is. You know, for God's sake, if you're gonna go, you know, if you're gonna say, oh well, squish guy, sell out all his principles, at least get a uh, if you're gonna get an unprincipled opportunist, at least get an effective one, which is what Boris is. Well, yeah, and see, uh, people were willing, uh, certainly in Central Canada, to forgive all of these sins of uh, Justin Trudeau. They overlooked that. So I don't know if this is something that's even possible to break that kind of uh, stranglehold the so-called Laurentian elites in central Canada have. I mean, with their critical mass here, all the votes vested in Quebec and Ontario, the way the whole thing is configured. uh, I mean, do you see somebody potentially being able to break through? No, yeah, well, absolutely, because I think if you look at what uh, Boris did, Boris took uh, places that had not voted for a Tory since 1935, uh, and and he managed to get them to change century-long, century-old tribal loyalties. So we talk about these, you know, the dispositions of certain Ontario and Quebec constituencies as, as if they're f- frozen, as if they're permafrost, as if they're whatever it is, that, that island that the Danes keep planting their <laughs> flag on, uh, you know, and it's just frozen solid and will never change. That's not true. When you have... Uh, they have no wit that the people around Andrew Shear, and I get annoyed about this. They, when you look at, say, if, I don't know whether you saw Boris's Love Actually parody mm-hmm. commercial, mm-hmm. but that had a certain amount of wit and style on, in it. Now, you look at Andrew Shear, the most managed and packaged candidate in the history of the Dominion of Canada, but he was packaged into being boring, tedious, and inhuman. So if you're going to have a, a, a creature that's just in the control of his minders, you're going to need better minders, because uh, Hamish, that guy Hamish and Warren Kinsella, these guys aren't, you know, that Love Actually ad uh, runs rings uh, around anything uh, that Andrew Shear's uh, minders uh, 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 could come up with. And that's before we get into all the nonsense uh, about how, you know, for the cost of, uh, of, of sending uh, Andrew Shear's kids uh, to, uh, to, to private school, you could have made a brilliant Love Actually commercial if you had any wit. And there's none in those, uh, in those minders in that little closed little Andrew Shear camp. God rot them all. Well, maybe the unkindest cut of all was when somebody said his birthstone was lint. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> With Mark Absolutely. Stone. Mark, before, yeah. before I let you go, I was going to say uh, Merry Christmas because we won't talk before then. But then I said to myself, should I balk at saying that? Because I know there was a lot of blowback on Justice Neil Gorsuch the other morning, I guess, on one yeah. of the morning shows. He actually uh, gave the salutation, Merry Christmas, and uh, the left went apoplectic. Like, I mean, is that a third rail now? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it, apparently it's a racist alt-right dog whistle to say <laughs> uh, Merry Christmas. Oh, come on, uh, John. You can laugh. We know that. Uh, you know, Felipe Navidad is Spanish for Make America Great Again, and Joyeux Noel is Quebecois for uh, Bill 21 Extreme Sports Edition, and uh, Nadoli Clowen is Welsh for I'm Dreaming of a Hard Brexit. You know, it, these are all just alt-right dog whistles, and we shouldn't have any truck with them. You know, Merry Christmas, right, that right there. Hitler, if there's a single quality Hitler was known for, it was merriness. If you'd been there on open mic night at that beer keller in Munich, he was the merriest guy around. This is just alt-right racist dog whistling when you go around saying Merry Christmas. You should have no truck with it, John. 
Wow. Uh, thanks for the heads up, albeit a little late now. I'm just going to have to wait for the tweets and the cards and letters to pour in. Uh, appreciate it. Maybe you can be a, a star at our license renewal party. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, really appreciate it as always. Uh, very Merry Christmas to you and yours, and uh, we'll talk on the other side of the new year. Yeah, happy uh, happy holidays, as the lefties say. <laughs> Mark Stein, international best-selling author, host of The Mark Stein Show. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.